Philip Yancey, in his book, Soul Survivors, introduces us to Dr. Paul Brand. Brand uh, was a missionary doctor, pioneering orthopedic surgeon, spent most of his career treating leprosy patients in Valori, India, and even spent a few, little time in the last standing leprosarium on our continent in Louisiana. Brand shares with us this way. Brand's, uh, Yancey shares with us. Brand's career centered on perhaps the most problematic aspect of creation, the existence of pain. I was writing the book, Where is God When It Hurts? He invited me to consider an alternative world without pain. He insisted on, man, on pain's great value to man, holding up as proof the terrible results of leprosy. Have to remember, leprosy destroys the uh, nerve endings that transmit pain. And these are the results. Damaged faces, blindness, loss of fingers, toes, and limbs, all of which occur as side effects of painlessness. As a young doctor in India, Brand had made the groundbreaking medical discovery that leprosy does its damage by destroying nerve endings. People who lose pain sensation then damage themselves by such simple actions as gripping a splintered rake or wearing shoes that are too tight. Pressure sores form infection sense in and no pain signals alert to tend them to get them to tend the wounded area. I saw such damage firsthand in the clinics. I thank God for pain, Brand declared with the utmost sincerity. I cannot think of a greater gift I could give my patients. He went on to describe the intricacies, intricacies of the pain system that protects the human body. It takes firm pressure on a very sharp needle for the sole of the foot to feel pain, whereas the cornea of the eye senses one one thousandth as much pressure, calling for a blink when a thin eyelash or a speck of dust just brushes the surface. Intestines do not sense pain from being cut or burned, dangers these internal organs don't normally confront, yet they send out the urgent pain signal of colic when they're distended. We doctors experience a rude awakening after medical school, Brand continued. After studying the marvels of the human body, suddenly I was thrust into a position much like the complaint desk of a department store. Not one time has a patient ever visited me to thank me for a perfectly functioning kidney or lung. They came to complain that something wasn't working properly. Only later did I realize the very things they complained about were their greatest allies. Most people view pain as an enemy, yet as my leprosy patients prove, it forces us to pay attention to threats against our bodies. Without it, heart attacks, strokes, ruptured appendices, stomach ulcers would all occur without any warning. Who would ever visit a doctor apart from the warning of pain? I noticed that the symptoms of illness my patients complained about were actually a display of bodily healing at work. Virtually every response of our bodies that we view with irritation or disgust, blister, callus, swelling, fever, sneeze, cough, vomiting, and especially pain, demonstrates a reflex towards health. In all these things, normally considered enemies, we all should be able to find a reason to be grateful. 
Were you asked when you became a believer in Jesus Christ to look at pain in a new way? To begin to look at pain and suffering as our allies rather than our enemies? I never was. A new way to look at pain. A new way to look at wealth, prosperity, pain, suffering, grief, wisdom, all that happens to us where? Under the sun. Everything that happens to us under the sun. What moves us, what gets us to make decisions about life, what gets us to make decisions even about faith, about whether or not we believe in God, about whether or not we're going to live that faith out, how we're going to treat each other. All is painted by what we are experiencing at any given time in our lives under the sun. These are just some of the things that our Kohelet has had us explore in here. If you're just joining us for the first time, we are studying our way through the book of Ecclesiastes, not a book that usually you uh, uh, get into explore on Sabbath. We've kidded ourselves in saying that we only read this at funerals. But I thought, if we read it at funerals and it can comfort us in funerals, then why not have it every day? Because at every day, given any, uh, there's a funeral going on anywhere under the sun. Our Kohelet, then that's the Hebrew word that we get Ecclesiastes from. The Kohelet is a wisdom teacher. He is a gatherer of words of wisdom and then teaches them. But our Kohelet has been exploring all of these things. Pain, way of life, everything that's going on. He's explored and he's shared and he's reflecting back at us his experience with what it's like to be and to live and to toil and to be vexed under the sun. He has a unique perspective, doesn't he? He brings it to us. So chapter eight begins where he thinks all should begin and end with. If I were to ask you just what we know of our Kohelet, just what we know of Solomon, name the one thing that you think Solomon would say that should cure all ills, that should make everything okay. What do you think it is? You guys don't remember? What's his favorite thing to apply to any situation in order to get an answer? Wisdom. Wisdom's used 149 times in the Hebrew scriptures. Solomon uses them more than anybody else put together. Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, all filled with this wonder that he calls wisdom. As far as he's concerned, everything should begin and end with wisdom. And uh, chapter seven actually ended with what wisdom can contribute to our lives and what it can contribute to living under the sun. This picks it up. He says, who is like the wise man? Who is like anybody who has wisdom? He says, there's nobody like him. Absolutely nobody like him. You know, those words are reserved for people like Jesus in the Bible. Who is like God? It's a rhetorical question. Who is like God? Only God himself is like God. So it's here. Who is like the wise man? Wisdom in, in some circles, in some ways that Solomon uh, uses it, he's actually telling you that God is wisdom personified, that that's his force, that that's who he is. Who knows the interpretation of a thing? Wisdom makes one's face shine and the hardness of one's countenance is changed. Wisdom, but he says, is what should guide the journey and provide all of our answers. It'll even provide joy 
when our faces are hardened, if something is going on in life that it's hardened our continence, wisdom, he says, should bring us what? It could actually change you from hard to joyful. He believes it answers all. So this seems to be a continuation from chapter seven of what I've been referring to as proverbial wisdom. Because Ecclesiastes, sometimes it's hard to tell the difference between what you're reading. Sometimes, I told you before that it's hard to preach from proverbial wisdom because proverbial wisdom is just that. I can't comment on it. Solomon's already done it for us. That's why Proverbs is so hard to do. So I tend to skip over in Ecclesiastes when these proverbial sayings come up, but I'm not so sure that that's what's going on in chapter eight. Because of the abrupt change he makes right here after this verse. He extols wisdom in the first verse. It should be what what guides us all. And then immediately he jumps to this. Keep the king's command because of your what? Because of your sacred oath. Do not be terrified. Go from his presence. Do not delay when the matter is unpleasant, for he does whatever he pleases. That's an awfully big leap from wisdom being able to bring you joy living under the sun to all of a sudden keep the king's commands. It's abrupt. And yet at first blush, you may be thinking, okay, well, it is a wise thing to obey a king, isn't it? Short term at least, right? How many here want to anger the king? Nobody wants to anger the king if you don't have to, right? So it seems to be wise, it seems to be proverbial that obeying the king's powers is a wise thing to do. It seems to be a wise thing to remember because there is danger in upsetting the king. There are dangers that begin to lurk in the corridors of power. So actually, instead of just a proverbial saying that you should obey the king, I think what he's trying to tell us, put up against here, uh, go with me on this, he may very well be trying to tell us that wisdom, for all its obvious advantages, even divine wisdom at a time, could, when it comes up against an, an earthly monarchical power like a king, it's going to lose. Under the sun, we play by different rules. See, the king plays by different rules under the sun. The only way that a king plays, stays in power is to play the rules of under the sun better than anybody. And what he might be saying is, yes, I believe that God's wisdom is for us all. God's love, God's grace, God's wisdom, God's presence, everything. But when it comes here to living under the sun and it comes up against a particular king, you're gonna lose because the king's power is all that matters here. For the word of the king is what? Powerful. And who could say to him, what are you doing? Whoever obeys a command will meet no harm and the wise mind will know the time and way. See, it seems, yes, it's wise to obey the king's command, but why? Why is it wise to consider the king's command or to obey the king's command? Because it would keep us from what here? It would keep you from harm. What is he implying a king uses in order to get people to do what he wants? To harm them. So again, short term, it might be the wise thing to do. But long term, 
If it is God's wisdom that's getting you to maybe go against what the king is saying, guess what? The wisdom is gonna lose because the king's power under the sun is what? It's absolute. It's absolute. It seems safe because you'll meet no harm and it is the safe thing to do short term. What might we not consider is that self-preservation and playing it safe may not be the wisdom that God is looking for at any given time, especially from believers. Actually, I would say only for believers. That's what this book is written for. This book is written as, as fellow believers in God and also people who have to live under king's authorities while we toil under the sun. He says, every matter has its time and way, although the trouble of mortals lie heavy upon them. Indeed, they do not know what is to be, for who can tell them how it will be? We don't know. We can't know. Obeying the king seems safe right now. That's what we should be doing. But we don't know how it's gonna turn out, do we? That's what he's saying. Wisdom could be taking us in another direction. But we won't know because the king's power under the sun always wins out. Wisdom can be distorted. It can be manipulated. When power threatens mortals to make the right decision, mortals look at it through the eyes of what they know and what they have. In other words, living under the sun is a vexation. There are some of us who struggle every day. We live in fear, uh, listening to Sabbath school this morning. We live in fear of poverty. We live in fear of being persecuted. We live in all kinds of fear, don't we? Well, unfortunately, kings have learned how to take advantage of that. Look at the list of the kings in the Bible, all that you read. They were all very good at taking advantage of the people's fears, weren't they? And to me, that's what's so wise about this. I think that's why he's exactly what he's talking about today. Indeed, they do not know what it's to be. It seems right, it seems safe. I may be able to come out on top. At least I do not have to fear the king and his authority but I don't know what that decision is going to be. I don't know if it's the right one. I don't know if it's going to be right. I do not know if the safe thing to do is the wise thing to do as a believer in God. No one can tell us. Our uncertainty, our fear, everything that motivates us, if we will, to make our decisions all by earthly power and kings, they can nullify wisdom at any turn. And that's what's interesting about our Kohelet is that he gives us a perspective that no one else could give because our Kohelet was once at what? A king. In fact, he wasn't just a king. Solomon was king with a capital K, was he not? Does he know what he's talking about? I think he knows exactly what he's talking about. You have a king actually trying to tell us what went on in those corridors of power. I'm telling you what I did, what kings can do with the absolute authority that they have. And when God's wisdom came to me and, I, and it was time to make a decision between God's wisdom and my authority, well, you know the results. All you have to do is read 1 Kings and 1 Chronicles. 
He shared it with us back in chapter one. When I, the teacher, when king over Israel in Jerusalem, applied my mind to seek and to search out by wisdom all that is done under heaven, it is unhappy business that God has given to human beings to be busy with. First thing his wisdom told me is that this is an unhappy business. Humanity, not, not, not king, not uh, uh, peasant, not, not, he said humanity. Our Kohelet was actually a king. Not just any king, like I said. King with a capital K. Why was it a capital K? Because he was God's ruler. These were God's people. He was ruler over Israel. Only the third one in their history. This was God's nation. And do you remember how God felt ultimately about Israel having a king? Was he for it? Did God give them a thumbs up when they decided that they wanted one? Uh, no. Samuel comes to him and says, no, guys, you don't want a king. Samuel tries to warn them about what will happen. What will happen when God's wisdom comes up against the king's rule? When you have to go through a human throne, Samuel said, I'll tell you what's going to happen. And God doesn't want it. He'll take your sons, he'll take your daughters, he'll take your money, he'll take your crops, he'll take your everything. And of course, Israel didn't believe him. Solomon seems to understand and, and he understands this, and I, I, I look at it. He is only the third, so who are the examples that he has that he looks back to? Saul, and then who? And his father. He looks back at Saul, he looks back at his father. And I really believe this, the way that he writes in Ecclesiastes 1 and Ecclesiastes 2, you know, where we were, I really believe that when he writes, I really believe that he thought he could make a difference. He really believed he could make a difference. The way that he says it, when he asks for wisdom from God, give your servant, therefore, an understanding mind to govern your people, able to discern between good and evil. For who can govern this? Your great people. Let me thrive where my father failed. And I know I can do better than Saul. Just give me what? Just give me wisdom. He wants to make a difference. I really believe he wanted to serve his people. He wanted to serve God and serve his people as he governed. His wisdom, he believed, can transcend what Samuel said a king would demand of Israel. A king could be somebody more than just lives out his own selfishness on the backs of his people. Wisdom is what could make the difference. He asks for it and he gets it. Let me ask you this, was it the solution? Was Israel's throne and Solomon's rule protected from corruption simply because Solomon was wise? No. In fact, I think it worked against him. Back in chapter one of verse 16, he says, I said to myself, I've acquired great wisdom surpassing all who were over Jerusalem before me. Who's he talking about? He's talking about Saul and he's talking about his own dad right? 
And my mind has had great experience of wisdom and knowledge, and I applied my mind to knowing wisdom and to know madness and folly. I perceived that this also was vanity, a chasing after the wind. He says, for in much wisdom is much vexation. And those who increase knowledge increase sorrow. For as wisdom grows, vexation grows, the Jewish Publication Society Bible says. To increase learning is to increase heartache. So what he found out wisdom would do for him. By the way, if it did this to him, if the king was experiencing this heartache, what do you think his subjects were feeling? Did it work? No. It vexed him. It caused him pain. And he had to come to a hard conclusion. I considered all that my hands had done and the toil I had spent in doing it. And again, all was vanity and a chasing after the wind. And there was nothing to be gained under the sun. So I turned to wisdom and madness and folly. For what can the one do who comes, or who comes after the king only what? Only what has already been done. He's trying to tell us in chapter eight what he found out back in chapter one, looking back on his reign in all his life, uh, chapter two. When God's wisdom and God's grace and God's love and faith in him and everything comes up against a king's authority, it's going to lose because the king knows only one way. And to be king under the sun means that it will always lose. I only could do what had been done before. I wanted to be better than my dad, and I ended up being worse. I wanted to be better than Saul, and I ended up being worse. Wisdom made no difference. All wisdom did was to show him how sad it was to be living under the sun. Only what had already been done. It all looked so good back then though, didn't it? I'm almost, I'm, I, every time that I get around to First and Second Kings and First and Second Chronicles and First and Second Samuel in devotion, I get there and I get to Solomon's part and it does, it all looks good. We even praise it. I've heard us praise it in Sabbath school to say what a time that must have been to live there when everybody seemed to be on God's side and everything, they were all doing what God wanted. It looks safe. Solomon builds the temple and, and, and tells the people all we have to do is just keep his commandments. He tells them no matter what happens, all sin, even, even sin that gets us hauled into captivity, he says all you gotta do is pray in the direction of this building and he will forgive and restore. And we look at it at, at the end when he dedicates the temple, it says that the cloud filled the temple and it drove all the priests out. And we say, yes, wow, this is, what a, what a time to be. The king standing in the courtyard using his national worship of God. God even approves. Well, the king said that he approved. And nobody Nobody notices the danger of this. Nobody sees it. Worshiping God as a nation, as a whole, having a king tell the people that they have to be worshipers of God, 
Church, we've been living as church for 2,000 years. What is the one thing that prophecy has told us to keep away from? Don't let a nation try to make you worship God. By the way, just an aside, I don't wanna spend too much time on it, but you know who performed all the sacrifices for the dedication of the temple that day? Solomon, the king. He performed all of them. What was it that got the kingdom, the throne ripped away from Saul was when he tried to offer the sacrifices before Samuel had shown up. Solomon's from the tribe of Judah. Is he allowed? No, nobody noticed that. But they look at Solomon and they look at his power and his wisdom and his wealth and the people go, who cares? Look, he has to be of God. Look what's happening here. Nobody cared. You know what? When it's all over. See, God, God comes to Solomon himself and that looks good. It really looks good. He comes to him himself and he's, he's going along the lines of all of Israel's rulers that come before him. Uh, he came, God came to his father himself. He comes to Moses himself. God always, he, he comes to him one-on-one. But, but what's interesting, you read through 1 uh, Kings and 1 Chronicles, the entire reign of Solomon. It's about seven chapters, eight chapters. The entire reign of Solomon, God doesn't come to him again until after he runs the kingdom off the rails. When now he's building shrines to horrible, uh, uh, horrific um, fertility gods and he's, and he's got all these wives and foreign women and he's doing all of these things, God doesn't come, in, come to him until then. That's when he comes to him. And when he comes to him, God kind of tells him, you know what, it's too late. I'll tell you what though, I'm not gonna rip the throne from you while you're still sitting on it. I made a promise to your father. I'm gonna take it away from your sons. And that's all he tells him. His meteoric rise and his meteoric fall, God comes to him at the beginning and only comes to him at the end. The in-between, three quarters of those, all of those accounts of Solomon's reigns does nothing but tally up his riches and extol his wisdom. That's all it is. Even the one, there's only a couple of narratives, in other words, stories that happened in real time. One of the narratives is about a foreign queen coming to witness uh, this magnificence. She can't believe what she's hearing, she needs to see it herself. So even the narrative is all about Solomon, it's all about his wisdom, it's all about his reign. And when she gets there, she is impressed with his wisdom, but what really opens her eyes is the wealth, the power. One thing that this whole experiment as a religious nation has done is convince the king that under the sun rewards means that God is favoring him. Can you tell me that Solomon isn't saying to us right here, looking back on it now, is that I thought God blessed me because I had all of this wealth and riches. In other words, being rewarded under the sun also means I'm being rewarded by God in heaven. Is that necessarily true? What does our wisdom tell us?
Has the Kohelet believed that God has blessed the way that the world uh, blesses? That he rewards spiritual worship with material wealth? See, a king that's convinced and can convince his nation that God is this way, can he use it to his advantage? If he can tell the nation, look, God favors you if you're wealthy, if you have power, that's a sign of God's favor. If he can convince his people of that, especially people that he is convinced God talks to him and that they all worship because of him, can he use that to his advantage? Read 1 Kings and listen to what he brought in every day. And I think that's exactly what Solomon is pointing out if we want to jump back to Ecclesiastes 8. No one has power over the wind to restrain the wind or power of the day of death. There's no discharge from the battle, nor does wickedness deliver those who practice it. All this I observed, applying my mind to all that is done under the sun, while one person exercise authority over another to the other's hurt. Was I using godly power to exercise authority to their hurt? He says, yeah. Because that's who I talked him into. That's what he believed. He believed that God rewarded him with all these riches. So that the only way that he could see that he was rewarded was with his power and with his wealth. And not only did he convince Israel that he was wise in doing it, he convinced them that this was God who felt this way about him. Only God can restrain the wind, he says. Only God knows exactly what's gonna happen. Only God knows the wisdom of our decisions. Are they really wise or were they only the king's decisions? Only he knows that, he says. But a king, a king, he says, that, that's different. A king then can apply my mind to another one's hurt. And I think that's exactly what he's done. I would would venture to say that God didn't show up early on in Solomon's reign to show him when he was going wrong because Solomon truly believed he didn't need to hear from him anymore. I still have everything you gave me, Lord. I'm still moving forward. You haven't told me any different. So he continues to go, and he does. He runs the kingdom right off the rails. The problem is, is what he teaches, I believe, what he teaches Israel about those who are rich or poor or those who are suffering or in pain. If you are rewarded by under the sun rewards for spiritual worship, then what about those who are poor, suffering, and in pain? Well, they must not be very good worshipers. They must not be of God. They don't pray hard enough. They don't have enough faith. The rich, the prosperer, not suffering, that's a clear sign that God favors them. Under the sun's rules, looking at it through those lenses, that's ideal for a king to take advantage of, isn't it? And again, if you don't think that Solomon took advantage of it, read 1 Kings. But 
But the king laments this as, his, as Kohelet. Kohelet, he sees it differently now. I saw the wicked buried. They used to go in and out of the holy place. They were praised in the city where they had done such things. This also is vanity. He said, I see the wicked praised at their funerals. You're there in a holy place having a funeral and the wicked are being praised for being righteous. Reputations of holiness follow them all, all to their graves even though they were actually wicked men. And he goes, by the way, it's the ultimate vanity. <laughs> if all you want is a good reputation, that follows you to the grave. If you're a wicked person, but you have a righteous reputation, what good is it now that you're dead? Because Sentence against an evil deed is not executed speedily. The human heart is fully set to evil. Though sinners do evil a hundred times and prolong their lives, yet I know that uh, it will be well for those who fear God because they stand in fear of him. But it will not be well for the wicked. Neither will they prolong their lives like a shadow because they don't stand in fear before God. Did you just see? He just flipped his position. He went from uh, righteous, uh, don't, it's not necessarily true that righteous suffer and, and, and uh, wicked don't, but now he's saying that it does. He goes, all I know in the midst of all this, I think he flipped him on purpose. He goes, all I know is that feeling that way, trying to figure out what's going on with somebody based on their status in life, based on what's happening, trying to judge their righteousness because of what they have or don't have. He says, you know what, that's crazy. All I know is that those who fear God, ultimately something good is going to happen to them. And that's all we know right now. Evil deeds aren't seen as evil here. Under the sun extols them. That's why uh, um, he, he said that um, uh, sentences aren't executed speedily. Why? Because the, the executions only come for things that under the sun feels is wrong or the under the sun definition of wicked versus righteous. There's a vanity that takes place on earth, he says, that there are righteous people who are treated according to the conduct of the wicked and there are wicked people who are treated according to the conduct of the righteous. I said that this also is vanity. See, I would have no problem if just one or two people judge that way. I have no problem that, the, that people under the sun judge other people that way. I've got no problem when the world looks and plays by the world's rules. I have no problem when the world looks and sees a poor suffering person and says, well, whatever God they worship must be punishing them. I've got no problem with that. I have a problem when believers do it. I've got a problem when we feel this way. Solomon said, I felt this way. I took advantage of it. And I'm trying to confess to you so that you can get a handle on what's going on with you under the sun. If you're gonna judge, judge. But judge according to true standards of righteousness and true standards of wickedness. Not just because somebody is suffering versus somebody who isn't or because somebody is rich versus somebody who's poor. 
So the Kohelet reigns in once again. He's been here before. He reigns in once again on this ingrained theme of living under the sun. Under the sun, it says that the righteous don't suffer, but the wicked do. He's weighing in on the issue again because he's seen it and it continues, he says, and it continues to affect people's lives. The people who are judging the other people and certainly the people who are being judged. By the way, the Kohelet doesn't come down on the side that he used to anymore. He doesn't come down on the side of those who teach that if you're suffering, you must have no faith. That if you're afraid, you've got no faith. That if you're sick, you must not have very good faith. He doesn't come down on their side. I think the one that I shared with you for the most famous ones are Job's friends. Job's friends come down on that side. You know, this wouldn't have happened if you weren't such a big sinner. Tell us what the sin was you committed. So the question that I asked at the beginning, I ask you now, do you see pain as a gift? Do you see suffering as a gift? A gift from God himself? It isn't easy, is it? The Kohelet knows it's not easy. That's why he's telling us this. If our faith is based on sinners suffer and saints do not, then we're arguing full tilt with the word of God. Gotta read the book of Job. I've preached through the book of Job. I've got 20 studies on the book of Job. If you want it, I'll bring it back. I've already preached it in this church, which I I shouldn't be preaching series that I've already preached. But if you want to, Job will tell you all you need to know about this. The Bible is full of imagery, not just Job, but full of imagery if we think about it. Metal tried in the fire, silver being purified by the refiner's fire, branches that do not bear fruit being trimmed away and thrown where? Thrown in the fire. Persecution, a cause for rejoicing when it's for righteousness sake. Blessed are the poor in spirit, the mourners, the meek, the hungry, the thirsty. Those are the ones that are blessed in this world of believers. The very thing that under the sun punishes or teaches that punishment is this. The world believes that suffering is a punishment for sin, prosperity a reward for faith. Why? Why does the world believe that now? We taught them that. It's the church that teaches them that. Solomon taught them that. Why suffering? Why pain? Just real quick, a primer on it. It's to strengthen our faith. Master who sinned that this man was born blind. Neither sinned, his parents nor him. He was born blind for the glory of God. He was born blind so that this man could know that God loves him. The world will reject him. By the way, the church will reject him too. The church only uses him as an object lesson. Nobody cares about him. They only care about the sin that caused him to be born blind. And once they think they figured that out, they walk away. And by the way, after they walk away, he's still hungry. He still needs food today. So, 
If you have to, if you suffer and stand by faith in order to endure, and you believe that suffering is a punishment for sin or a lack of faith, then when you suffer, you actually then, your faith will crumble when God is trying to strengthen it. See, if I've been convinced by Solomon and convinced by authorities, convinced by the church that I'm suffering uh, because um, I don't have any faith, well, then my faith will actually crumble if I believe that when God is actually using suffering to strengthen it. Our faith has to depend on something else, something other than being earthly or physically blessed. Job teaches us that. When he gives a primer on what uh, suffering is for, Job himself, what suffering is for, the context of the passage, uh, whether or not you want to debate that, for Job, it's a moot point. You know why? Because Job actually believes God is doing this to him. So Job won't even let you argue with him about righteousness and suffering and wickedness and not suffering. He won't even argue with you about that because he actually believes right now God is his enemy. Won't you look away from me for just a second, he yells at God. Let me alone until I swallow my spit. You won't even leave me alone long enough to create spit in my mouth that I can swallow. If I sin, what do I do to you, you watcher of humanity? Why have you made me your target? Why have I become a burden to you? Yet back in Job 1, he decided that even though he believes God is doing this to him personally, he still worships him as God. I've always pointed out when I begin to preach in Job that Job just might be the best human being humanity has to offer because he uses no earthly blessing, no earthly incentive to worship God. He worships God simply because he's God. And he doesn't have any children to show for it. He doesn't have a marriage to show for it anymore. He doesn't have any wealth or riches to show for it anymore. So if our faith is rooted in the righteous don't suffer and we experience pain and suffering and grief, then where what might we turn for safety? See, if our church is not going to gather around us and begin to and, uh, preach and teach and offer true comfort in, in, in suffering without judging them as to why they're suffering, then where will they turn for safety? We make these people victims of the kings because the kings promise to take care of them. You with me? Or did I, did I leap across the bank too quick there? That's what I mean. This is how kings could take advantage of this. And then to be able to stand up and say, I'm only doing what your church does. Your church told me that if you're suffering, you must not have any faith. Yet secular powers that be, those who claim to be speaking for God, at least I can have safety, the safety that comes with not ticking off the king. At least I can have that. But I think Solomon here is confessing to us as king that he did this very thing. By the way, it's why I spent 17 weeks talking about our Christian heritage and the danger 
of what it means when a nation decides that they're going to make somebody worship a god. That it's also the dragon's one manifestation, its single manifestation is a national religion. No matter what nation or no matter what religion, the dragon has, has said that that is the ultimate counterfeit of church. It's the counterfeit of church. It's the counterfeit of God to be a nation that believes, a Christian nation, a Jewish nation, a Muslim nation. The beast from the sea and the beast from the land, they're national churches. You have a king who now comes to us as a wisdom teacher, ultimately cursing this belief for us so that we don't have to carry it on. He doesn't want the burden that he placed upon the people of Israel to be on us when it comes to what we believe about this. He wants us to be free. By the way, that's, to me, that's the ultimate um, context of this here. Because we, we debate this verse all the time, right? So I commend enjoyment for there's nothing better for people under the sun than to eat, drink, and enjoy themselves. Eat, drink, and be merry. What do we debate about this? Is the Bible really telling us we can party? Ah, well, within reason. But actually what it's saying is if you can learn how to be content. In other words, if you're suffering, but you don't have to believe that God is causing this suffering because of lack of faith. If you're in pain, but you don't have to believe what's happening, uh, uh, trying to figure out what's happening. You don't have to listen to people judging you as to why this may be happening. If you're free from that, then you're free to worship, aren't you? You can't fall then under a trap of a king that's trying to make you do something. If I am completely content with what I got and I'm not being judged by my fellow believers, I'm not being judged by the world, then, then, then we're okay. I wish the church could be a safe place where we can all do nothing but enjoy what we have with each other without having all of this else put upon us. It's who we should be. It's who we should be. So do you believe that pain is a gift? Do you believe that suffering is a strengthening of righteousness? I believe that only people who have a real relationship with God can suss that out. Who really walk and talk with God. Having a face-to-face, walking, talking relationship with Jesus Christ. No more intercessors. Moses was an intercessor. The priests were intercessors. The monarchy were intercessors. God's people continues to back away from God and try to limit his presence in their life and still think that life will be okay while doing so. And the church gets just as creative where uh, the Bible can be an intercessor. Jesus had, had people arguing with him that he couldn't be the Messiah because the Bible said that he wasn't the Messiah. The guy who wrote the Bible and has it written completely upon his heart is being told by the church that he can't be who he claims to be because the word says. People could be this, the church can be this. The church then can comfort and strengthen each other without judging one another and quit looking for substitutes outside of his grace, his love, 
his forgiveness and his atonement. We have to protect each other. We gotta save each other's dignity and protect each other. Quit judging and love simply as we've been loved. Man, am I glad that Solomon lived long enough to be able to tell us that, to be able to bring that to us. That's why I love the words of the Kohelet. Thank you all for hanging in there with me. (laughs) 